August 1934. The body of an unidentified young woman is found off the side of a rural road in Australia, beaten, shot and set alight. She is wearing bohemian pyjamas, so the press nickname her Pyjama Girl. It would take 10 years for the identity of Pyjama Girl to be discovered, but many believe that this identification was an error and that she is still a Jane Doe. Who is Pyjama Girl? Primary sources for this episode include the Royal Australian Historic Society, the Australian Dictionary of Biography, Mamma Mia, Medium and Science Direct. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 96 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I can't even tell you how many times I recorded that intro and had to re-record it because I couldn't say rural. I was having major issues with it. So I hope that you guys are well. Just a quick update um, if you're not a patron, um, but you've emailed me like about your thyroid issues or mine. So I got my results yesterday um, after my scans of my neck at the hospital because I've had quite a big lump in my neck of my thyroid, goiter, as I hate saying. And so I have a severe Graves disease, which is a common form of hyperthyroidism when your thyroid is overactive. Um, and I also have Graves ophthalmopathy, which is um, something that happens in a small percentage of people with Graves disease. And um, it's when your eye muscles and tissues start to get affected by the Graves disease and the hormones. So they start getting restricted. Um, so I've got quite like bulging eyes. And so that's what it is. So what I thought was just going to be straightforward and they'd say, keep taking the medication has become something else <laughs> entirely because I have to go back this week again to the hospital. I have to see an ophthalmologist about my eyes. Um, basically I have to have weekly steroid infusions because my eyes are so affected by it. Um, and yeah, all kinds of things. So really the last year I've had symptoms and just ignored them. Um, I can't even just look up, look up Graves disease cause I've had so many, um, and some of them have been really bad and it still wasn't enough for me to seek an answer. So if you have any of those symptoms, if you look it up, um, yeah, I would. <laughs> so I will keep you posted on that. Um, I'm quite tired and over it already. So <laughs> I'm back with a regular episode. I hope that you enjoyed the one where I brought my friend Laura on. I'm sure that you got a lot out of that because she's so good at explaining things better than I am. Um, so I thought I'd bring you a regular episode because it has been a week since a regular episode. And um, I just want to say quickly before I get into this week's episode, which won't be particularly long, it's more of like a mini, um, that I have two new patrons in the last week. Those patrons are Jay and Stephanie. So thank you so much for coming on board. Now, just quickly, um, patron Finton sent me an update on a case we've done. So Michaela McAreevy, who was a Irish newlywed who was murdered on her honeymoon in on the island of Mauritius, um, they have essentially agreed to reopen the case in Mauritius. Now, I believe they got the right people the first time around and that there's just been a massive miscarriage of justice. So let's see what happens with that because she deserves better than what she got, Michaela. Um, now, I am currently researching a number of Patreon location requests. I've got about seven coming up. 
But for this week, um, or for this particular episode, I may do one later in the week, I have picked out one that I've had on my list for quite a while. And I like to occasionally come back to Australia because I have a lot of Australian cases and I am Australian. And looking back, I'm not sure if this is right, but it says the last time we had any kind of journey back to Australia was the Heath Ledger um, biography episodes. So I'm not entirely sure, but I decided to tell the story of Linda Agostini or maybe the story of Pajama Girl, if they are the same thing. Um, this is a case that they say Australians know, but I'd literally never heard of it before this one. They say it's like an enduring mystery and I don't know anyone who knows it um, because I guess it was such an old case. It happened in 1934. But part of this takes place in my city, Melbourne. So I will um, kind of get to talk a little bit about Australia and what it was like in the 1930s. Now, the case is known as the Pajama Girl case um, and it is, I guess, something that even today people are either for or against the outcome or what they think the official outcome of this was. But whoever this was is buried in my city. So maybe I'll go out there and put some flowers on their grave or something at some point. So let's get into who Linda Agostini was. So Linda Agostini was a English girl. She was born Florence Linda Platt in southeast London on September 12th, 1905. So she was a Virgo like me and I probably know what she was like. So she grew up in the city of London before she relocated to Surrey, England. Um, and she worked as a teenager in a lolly shop or a candy store, I guess some people would say, or a sweet shop, probably in the UK. So um, I kind of get the feeling, even though we don't have a play-by-play of Linda and a whole lot of information about this case, because it won't be particularly long episode, um, that she was quite an independent spirit. And there's really no mention of her parents or siblings or anywhere in this. So when she was 19, which was in 1924, um, the then 19-year-old Linda relocated to the to New Zealand. Um, and according to some sources, she was heartbroken after a breakup in England. And I presume she decided to put the entire world between herself and that person, which I understand. Um, now, I don't know what she did in New Zealand, but she was there until 1927 when she crossed the Tasman Sea, which is the sea that separates New Zealand and Australia. And she moved to Australia. And I guess I have to presume she took a ship um, and didn't fly because flying commercially was this new kind of thing around this time. And generally for rich people. So Linda arrived in the bustling city of Sydney. Now, quickly, she got a job in a cinema as a usher or usherette, as they called her. And she lived in a boarding house on Darlinghurst Road, which is in the very busy central part of King's Cross, Sydney, which has a lot of nightclubs and things like that, even to this day. And even back then, it was an entertainment precinct. Um, Linda liked men, she liked drinking, and she liked partying. And I feel like she did a lot of all of it, so to speak. That was a bit crass. So let's talk a little bit about what Australia was like in the late 1920s when Linda's ship docked in the harbour city of Sydney. 
After World War One, where Australia lost many soldiers fighting abroad, um, much progress was made in Australia and opportunity for at least white Australians was vast pre the Great Depression of the 30s and then World War Two of the 40s. Um, the flapper period of 1920s Australia, late 1920s, was a very exciting time for a lot of people. Australia at this stage was two decades into federation and really trying to forge its own identity away from, I guess, its roots in Britain. And this time was a really early time for immigrants to come to Australia. Australia is one of the most multicultural countries in the world and Particularly post-wars, we have seen a huge amount of particularly European immigrants around this time, um, 20s, 30s, 40s, arriving into Australia. And a lot of them are responsible for a lot of the progress we made because they worked hard and built a lot of the things we should be grateful for today. Returning soldiers, Australian soldiers are known as diggers overseas when they're fighting and in Australia, they were idolised. And when they returned from war, they were given significant loans to buy and build properties. Um, Family spent Sundays seeing a matinee at the cinema. um, And the Australian film industry was creating around 100 Australian films a year, which is quite incredible. So decades later, you guys should be grateful for movies like Muriel's Wedding and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. (laughs) Um, Now, cars started filling the roads, but then again, at that time, only rich people really owned cars and people listened to the wireless, but you needed a wireless license to do that. That's still something that you need in the UK, which is hard to believe. In Australia, it's free to listen to the radio. Unfortunately for Indigenous Australians who on some episode coming up, we will talk more about the, you know, Indigenous Australians, particularly ones in the top end and the outback. They weren't entitled to this period of prosperity. As many know, in the 1920s, Aboriginal children were being forcibly removed from their homes and resettled in white families or made to work for white families. The home loan programs that non-Indigenous Australian diggers returning from the war were entitled to, Aboriginals were not entitled to those loans, even though they had put their lives on the line to fight for their country in the First World War. They weren't allowed to vote and they also were not entitled to medical treatment and they were pretty much treated as subhuman, which is a terrible term, but that's how they were treated. People who worked lived on farms had came up against what a lot of farmers today in Australia still come up against. Droughts on farms were common, so not much has changed in 100 years. But the government was pushing for more people to move to the regional areas outside the cities um, and to develop, to develop in regional areas. One of the great Australian sporting greats, who most people know his name, Sir Donald Bradman, um, made his debut in cricket in the late 1920s. The 20s also saw a lot of new freedoms for women in Australia. Um, The first woman, whose name was Edith Cowan, she was admitted to Australian Parliament in 1921. Unfortunately, when she made her maiden speech in Parliament, men just started yelling over her and she copped a lot of verbal abuse from people during her time in Parliament. But she was an early proponent of gender equality and it was quite amazing when she was elected into Australian Parliament. Women could vote for 20 years at this stage in Australia, although New Zealand had 
been able to, women had been able to vote for a long time, even before Australia. We always seem to do things after them. Um, but the jazz era or the 1920s saw women and exiting the home to work for themselves, um, to express themselves more. And kind of superficially, the, the jazz bob with the finger curls that many of you may know was in. And we have a few pictures of Linda. I was actually thinking I have more pictures of Linda than I do of some people I've covered who went missing in like 2010. Um, so Linda herself seemed to be a flapper. She had the finger wave, very short bob um, that a lot of people were kind of women were starting to take on. They were moving away from the long hair and like, fuck this, liberating themselves with short hair, which is always an amazing thing to do. And she was only five foot tall. So she was a very slight, small girl. She's quite attractive. Her photos, um, she's kind of got an energy or a look that's very reminiscent of some of the old Hollywood actresses of, you know, the thirties or the late twenties, because I'm quite into old Hollywood. Home duties for women became easier with the introduction of the washing machine um, and Australians with means were able to fly domestically and overseas. The population of Australia in 1927 was just over 6 million people, so we had a huge expanse and very little people living here. Now, just to put that in perspective, the population of my city of Melbourne, which is a very small state in Victoria, the state is Victoria in the southeast, um, now has a population of 6 million. So that was the whole population of Australia back then. Today, a century on, the population of Australia is 26 million. So you can see just how much immigration, um, a lot of it is down to immigration. Now, this period in the Sydney that Linda set foot in was really fascinating. And I was just talking about this with Lorena a couple of days ago. So Sydney and Melbourne were renowned for their gangs. Um, and if you've ever heard of the show Underbelly, I recommend watching the season, I think it's season four, with the Razor Gangs. And they talk about the Razor Gangs of Sydney and Melbourne during that time. Now, one of them was run by a woman called Tilly Devine, which is quite incredible, um, but they kind of made her a lot more glam than what she is in the show. The central suburb of Darlinghurst in Sydney was nicknamed Razorhurst because Razor Gangs were such a big thing. Um, in On the Melbourne side of things, a very high-profile kind of gangster called Squizzy Taylor was running the city pretty much. And he was gunned down in the inner city suburb of Carlton in 1927, which was the suburb that Linda and her husband coming up would move to in Melbourne. So Linda arrived in Australia at the best time so far for women and to a nightlife that was really raging. Her base on Sydney's King's Cross in a boarding house, which was generally the option for women on their own or women without means, um, really put her at the centre of an entertainment hotspot. And I've got a few pictures of late 1920s, early 1930s um, King's Cross that I will put up. Um, so they had trams, um, theatres, clubs, you know, we didn't have prohibition here, but, you know, kind of speakeasy type bars. And Linda liked going out and hitting them. Now, in the 1930s, Linda married a Italian immigrant to Sydney, Antonio Agostini, who had come out to Australia from Italy around the same time as Linda. Now, he was a waiter. Um, kind of stereotypes around Italians at the time were still very 
kind of widespread across Australia. I don't know how they met or how long they were together for. I don't think very long. Um, Antonio, who went by Tony, so I will call him Tony, he and Linda were around the same age. Now, there was no big wedding. Antonio and Linda, who didn't have a whole lot of money, got married at the Sydney Registry Office. And Antonio is described as tall, dark and handsome. Um, he is kind of like a good looking guy. I've got a few pictures of the two of them. I just, it makes me laugh because he was only five foot seven and they talk about how tall he was. Now, according to Tony, um, as he was called, Linda would often disappear for long periods of time. She wouldn't come home. Um, she wasn't perfect wife material. Um, she drank a lot. And this is kind of, I think, backed up by people who knew her. And in the close-knit Italian immigrant community that Tony was a part of, this really brought shame on him, this kind of behaviour from a wife who should be at the time at home looking after a house and kind of looking at having a family. Tony ultimately moved Linda to the city of Melbourne, which is about 12 hours drive um, southeast or south, I guess, really, of Sydney to put distance between her and her wild Sydney friends that she used to get up to a lot of mischief with. But that's kind of funny to me because if someone's lifestyle is really like that, she's probably just going to find Melbourne equivalent people. Um, so they settled in Carlton, which is where I told you Squizzy Taylor was killed. So Carlton is an inner city suburb that's very famous for its Italian influence, its Italian community and its Italian um, restaurants, although half of them are closed now because of lockdowns, um, thanks to our premier. So it's very entwined with the Italian community and Melbourne is very much a city where different districts are very linked to different ethnicities um, because of our large multicultural community. And Ligon Street, which is a very famous historic street in Carlton, um, is just filled with Italian, amazing Italian restaurants. Um, it was also right up until, you know, the 2000s or 10 years ago where a lot of Australian mafia identities, um, Melbourne mafia identities would eat or be gunned down um, and things like that. So not a lot changed over a hundred years. And I presume that Linda and Tony ended up in Carlton because he probably would have had connections there being Italian. A lot of my family kind of grew up around this area um, in inner city Melbourne around the time my grandparents would have been. My grandfather would have been probably about 12 around this time um, and my grand would have been, you know, a little girl. So because this was in the 30s, as I've said, I don't have a play-by-play -play of it her day in, day out, what Linda was doing. But I know that in Melbourne, Tony worked at an Italian newspaper that would publish a newspaper for the Italian community. And Linda was working at a hairdresser's in the centre of the city. She probably took the tram into work every day. <clears throat> but the city change did not help the couple because as kind of the saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. And that's always what I remind myself of. Running from your problems isn't necessarily going to fix anything. The couple fought a shitload and a lot of this came down to Tony's expectations of what Linda was going to do with her life and what she should be doing and Linda kind of not wanting to fit that mould. And you got to wonder, like, why Linda married him. Maybe she wanted the security. Maybe part of her did love him. Um, I'm not entirely sure. So in late August 1934, when Linda was 29, Linda disappeared. 
Um, and she was ultimately reported missing by her husband, Tony, although I can't tell you when or how long it took him to report her missing. But he ultimately said um, that Linda had pissed, like she'd run away, basically. So a week later, a body was discovered in a culvert alongside a road in a place called Splitters Creek, which is near the town of Albury, which is in a separate state to Melbourne. The man who found the body was a local who was walking along the side of the road next to the culvert. He was walking a bull of his um, and he smelt a very strong smell of kerosene, which, you know, people used to use in lamps and things like this. Now, I just want to stop for a minute and tell you how far this is from Carlton where Linda was living when she vanished. So Albury is in another state. It crosses over. It's literally on the border. So on the Victorian side of the border, closest to Melbourne is Wodonga. That's a real place. <laughs> and then in on the other side of the border, literally literally on the other side of the border is Albury. So Wodonga on the Melbourne side, on my side, Albury. So a lot of people refer to it as Albury-Wodonga. Um, so Albury-Wodonga is about three and a half hours drive from Melbourne, north kind of east. It's around 325.5 kilometres. Um, and if you're driving, that's how long it's going to take. Um, public transport like trains, um, which is the V-Line Victorian regional trains um, is over five hours. So it is a lengthy distance. And I've been through Albury quite a lot of times. That's where we used to stop. My dad would let us get McDonald's on the way to visit um, my great aunt in New South Wales. So the body that was discovered was badly charred, pretty much the lower part of the body, especially the legs. Um, it had clearly been set alight using kerosene as the accelerant at some point, but it had rained the night before. It was winter and I think August is one of the you know wettest months next to October in Victoria. So the rain had actually put out this fire, but it was in a very rural kind of area. And as I said, remember, the population was way lower. Less people were living in Albury than ever before. So this body was wearing these yellow, what they referred to as the Timus Oriental style pajamas. Now we don't have a picture of that, but basically they were like silky bohemian pajamas with a dragon um, kind of print on them. I'm sure a lot of you can imagine it, that kind of kimono um, fabric. And you know, that kind of Oriental um pattern that they have. Um, so the body was then wrapped in a Hessian sack and its head was wrapped in a towel um, and it was concealed from the road. So it was very lucky that this man kind of looked down and he actually saw the Hessian sack first. The body was taken for x-rays and it was discovered that there was a bullet in this woman's neck and her skull was very damaged. It was kind of like crushed in from like a bad beating. So without an identity, the woman's body was nicknamed Pajama Girl by the press because of these kind of youthful, quite expensive pajamas that she was wearing. And that that kind of set the tone for who they thought that they were trying to find. It was probably a symbol of someone who at some point had a bit of money because the country was by this point hit by the depression and these were 
kind of a purchase that you wouldn't necessarily buy if you were hard up. They knew this woman was probably young, in her 20s, and very petite. And I will put up pictures of the body. They kind of released at the time. It's actually amazing how many photos they released or had of her. Um, and back then, if there were photos of you, you probably had a little bit of money. Um, they kind of put an effect on the face so it didn't totally scare people who were seeing it in the newspaper. So who this person, the pictures of them, basically I'm looking at it, you know, right now. So what they did first, which is also quite incredible, is they made a mask based on what they believe the person looked like. Um, and it did look like you know, Linda Agostini, as we will find out. Um, there's also, they released a thing with like a kind of blurring over the face, which I will put on the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com when I put up this episode page. Um, and it's a woman, obviously her hair's not done. She's got the same haircut as Linda Agostini, um, but they've kind of blurred out her face a little bit. So it's not like too upsetting to look at. So Basically, this pyjama girl was then taken up to Sydney because they went up north to the next kind of city, even though Melbourne is way closer. And I think they probably assumed that she was a city woman from Sydney. And they put this body of this woman on public exhibition to try to identify her, which they wouldn't do these days because it was freak people out. But back then, they just put her on exhibition and people could just file through and look at her. Now, I will say... From everything I've read, the cops did not half-ass this investigation. They took photos. They took photos of the crime scene um, where she was found. I'll put all of these on the website and on the Patreon. Um, they made a mask of what they believed she looked like, which are even better than some of the ones they do today. They even went as far as to make a list of all the women women under 40, because they believed this body belonged to a woman who was under 40, who had not voted in the last federal election on the weekend after the body was discovered. So if that doesn't make any sense to you, Australia, you have to vote. It's compulsory. Otherwise, you'll get a fine in the mail. I didn't vote once in a state election because I was living overseas, but I was still registered and I got like a $75 fine. But not voting in a federal election, which is for the prime minister, um, you'll get like hundreds of dollar fine. And that went for back in the day as well. So what they did was they tracked down all the women who didn't vote, which probably would have panicked like half of them who were still alive, um, who were like, oh, fuck, I just didn't want to vote. Um and then they went through them to determine kind of if anyone fit the description and if any of them were missing, which is a really, really good way at the time to go through it because most people do vote. So in 1935, a man came forward to suggest that the woman who had been found the year before um, might have been a friend of his, Linda Agostini, who we've already talked about. They've never said who this man was, but I believe it was a friend of hers from her early days in Sydney. So Linda had disappeared in August 1934, um, but other, basically he viewed the body and believed that um, it was Linda, but other people who knew Linda also went to view the body in Sydney and said that it wasn't her. Um, so ultimately the police in Sydney decided to keep this pyjama girl in a bath of formalin and lime to preserve the body at the Sydney University Medical School, which still exists today. Um, and she was kept there until 1942. They then took this preserved body to police headquarters in Sydney, where they kept it until 1944. 
So they reported it at the time and there was actually a newsreel which was called the Pajama Girl Case and they consider that to be Australia's first true crime film which was in 1939 and I'm going to read to you from that but not in that funny newsreader voice from way back in the day. Quote, hundreds of people anxious to help solve the crime have viewed the body but with no result other than personal horror for no one who has seen it once wants to see it again, unquote. So basically nobody could come forward to confirm who this woman was. Um, The Pajama Girl case was ultimately reopened in 1944 because they still had this body preserved at police headquarters. The Second World War at this stage was coming to an end um, and they would have seen some of the largest kind of numbers of European immigrants set sail for Australia around this time. This time, though, there had been advances in technology that meant the police and the forensic pathologists were able to match dental records of Linda Agostini that were on record to the teeth of this woman. Um, And they were able to determine that indeed it was Linda Agostini from this. So finally they had a corroboration of what the body, who who it belonged to. Also, in addition to that, they were able to match freckles and moles on an upper arm that were identical to early photos of Linda as well that they had. Now, the police very quickly realised that British-born Linda had a husband at the time she went missing. He had reported her missing in 1934, but she was never found. And he kind of wrote her off as having run off because of her history doing that. So the police decided to try to find where Tony Agostini was at this point. And he'd left Melbourne about 18 months after Linda died or about a year after He'd then gone to Perth on the West Coast for a while um, and then he was in Sydney. So he had spent the last four years from 1940 to 1944 when they caught up with him in internment camps. And these internment camps in Australia were for nationalist sympathisers. So Tony very clearly had still had sympathies towards, I'm presuming, Mussolini back in Italy, even though it never confirms what. Um, And they found a lot of them were a threat to freedom in Australia, which I agree with. Um, They That we were in the Allies and they were the axis of evil during the Second World War. And um, Tony was still kind of sympathising with them. So if that's what you think, like, go back to Italy. So He was um, basically the man in charge, um, and I don't have his name here, but he was the head cop. He had actually known Tony Agostini because Tony had worked at a restaurant as a waiter way back in the day when he'd first met Linda, and this police officer would frequent the restaurant and kind of chat to Tony when he got his morning coffee. So he actually, like, went back to this restaurant, and Tony was back working there, believe it or not. The minute that he saw this police officer, Tony started, like, shaking and getting immediately nervous. Um, And the police officer was like, you know, what's wrong, Tony? Tony was acting so weird that they actually took him in for questioning. And pretty much immediately, he confessed to killing his wife, Linda, and to driving hours with her body across the state border to dump it. Now, Tony was ultimately extradited back to Melbourne to face trial for murder, where they believe that he killed Linda in their home in Carlton. Back then, women did not sit on juries, so the jury of 12 um, were all male. And ultimately, he was not found guilty of murder. He was found guilty of manslaughter, and he was sentenced to six years in prison with hard labour back in the day. 
Around the same time, there was also an inquest. And despite the identification being contested by one particular forensic scientist, he claimed that it was the body of another missing girl who was a Sydney girl called Philomena Morgan. The coroner finally came to the conclusion that it was indeed the body of Linda Agostini. Now, this one who contested it, he had a very kind of sketchy history. So basically, Tony's story was that Linda and Tony moved down to Melbourne to escape Linda's kind of partying friends, but the change of scenery did not help their marriage. Surprise, surprise. Antonio said that Linda had threatened to kill him multiple times. And he said one morning he woke up and she was pressing a gun to his head. So very, very kind of Elaine Bracco in Goodfellas. So a struggle then followed and he said, quote, the next thing I heard was a shot going off. She gave a long gasp and ceased to struggle, unquote. He blamed their struggles in their marriage on Linda's drinking and also her behaviour being, quote, far from ladylike, unquote. <laughs> so Tony ultimately did his six years and he was released in 1948. And as a lot of Australian, we still do in Australia, actually, um, which I, I, it's actually one thing I really like think is good. Um, back then and even today, if you are an immigrant um, who is not a citizen. Um, sometimes they strip citizenship, but they deport you back to the country that you're from after you've committed a crime like this. And Tony was deported back to Italy where he ultimately lived in Sardinia until he died in 1969 when he would have been probably in his mid-60s, maybe early 60s. So Basically, no one really talked about this case for decades after it was case closed based on the dental, the corroboration of the marks on her body um, until a man called Richard Evans, who's an Australian historian, started looking into this. And in 2004, he published his book, The Pajama Girl Mystery, A True Story of Murder, Obsession and Lies. Now, I have not read this because Firstly, I can't find it. And secondly, there's a lot of things I don't agree with. But basically, his his version of events is that it was not at all Linda Agostini, pyjama girl, that whoever was buried in Melbourne as Linda Agostini was not Linda Agostini. And that Tony Agostini's kind of confession doesn't match up with the actual evidence. So I'm going to go through that now. He believes this was police corruption and a, mas a miscarriage of justice, which I don't agree with because it was like, <laughs> it took them like 10 years to get this person. If it was corruption, they would have got a person immediately. So the first thing was that the pajama girl had brown eyes um, and Linda, I guess, sorry, the, some people say the pajama girl had brown eyes and Linda's were blue, but I think the actual thing is that one source says that Linda Agostini um, had blue eyes and pajama girl had brown eyes. No, no. It's um so the pajama girl had brown eyes and Linda's So the first piece of evidence that Richard Evans puts forward in that it wasn't Linda Agostini who was pajama girl was that pajama girl's eyes were blue um were brown and Linda Agostini's were blue. So two very different things. Now, I remember reading that when eyes get like a glazed look about them, they turn kind of like a bluey color when you've died. Um, and then this 
this kind of um, article from Richard Evans says that that's never happened in history. And I was like, I swear to God, I've heard that happening. A lot of these things I put down to misreporting um, or tiny little kind of discrepancies, uh, kind of lack of memory and things like that. I can't fully explain the corroboration, the difference in eye colours. So the next thing um, was that the bullet wound and the trauma to pajama girl's skull. So she had been shot in the neck, but she'd also been, it looked like like her skull had been crushed in. So during Tony Agostini's interview, he never mentioned trauma to the skull. He said he shot her and then he moved her body. Um, and then later on when they, in the trial, they brought up the trauma to her body. And he said that he accidentally dropped the body down the stairs as he was moving it to his car to then move it to Albury. Um, Richard Evans sees this as very dodgy. Um, I do not. I just think Tony was minimising his involvement in it, you know, because you they're adding all these charges on top. Like he's also going to be done with like battery of his wife as well. Um, I think he only kind of coughed it up once he had to. Now, the next thing Richard Evans says is that, Tony Agostini in his confession refers to the gun as a revolver when he should have said pistol and Richard Evans says Tony should have known the difference because he had a history of military service. Now, this confession came 10 years after he had done it. 10 years is a long time, like, for a memory. Um, Maybe he, you know, had had a pistol since then or a revolver since then and he got them confused. We really don't know. Um, Another thing that Richard Evans hinges his case on is that he said that during his confession, Tony, when he gave directions and told them how he drove to Albury, um, he said that he turned off a road before he got to Albury. But to get to where the body was discovered from Melbourne, he would have had to have driven straight through town. Now, I would never hinge like... (laughs) anything on this. Tony would have never been to Albury. Like try to think back to 10 years ago when you drove somewhere you'd never driven and try to like kind of think of the directions you drove. I very much doubt that you would have got them right. Um, The next thing is that Richard Evans says that Tony in his confession said that he poured petrol over the body. Um, When it wasn't petrol, it was kerosene. Now, again, it had been 10, over 10 years by the time this went to trial and when he confessed and everything. Um, That's like a tiny little discrepancy. I wouldn't like hinge anything on that. Some people believe that the press's anti-Italian sentiments got Tony convicted, but then some people go, well, actually he only got six years for a murder of his wife. So it actually looks like being a man actually worked in his favor and it didn't matter where he was from. Um, So all in all, like all we've got for this, Linda's body is now buried in Preston General Cemetery in Melbourne. Now, it's basically the opposite side of Melbourne to where I live. And I was thinking at some point I'd go out there and lay flowers because whoever's in that grave, whether it's Linda or someone else, it's sad because if it is Linda, she literally had no one left in Melbourne to put flowers on her grave. And there's actually a picture of her grave by someone who went out there. Um, and that makes me very, very sad because her family would have been back in England, um, in London. I will put up photos on the Unknown Passage podcast website of the body found and Linda and the other photos, really because it's been almost 100 years since this happened, around 90 years. All we have to go off is these photos and 
circumstantial evidence, really. Um, I firmly believe that it probably was Linda. She's never shown up again. Um, and also Tony's confession was pretty immediate. It's not like the cops had it in for him because if they did, they would have, when she went missing 10 years before, picked her out of a list and framed the husband. Um, also the cop who was in charge of this new Tony from previously and was quite like kind of friendly with him. So I very much doubt it was a set up job. Um, basically only 10 minutes, I believe they actually recorded the police interview back in the day on audio on tape. The first 10 minutes wasn't recorded, but I don't think 10 minutes is enough to kind of hinge it on that they bashed him in that 10 minutes. Most of his story really does add up. The only thing I can't explain is that how do eyes go from brown to blue or blue to brown? Um, really, I have like, I swear to God, I've heard that they, they do before or they get a glaze that makes them appear blue when they're not. Um, the rest of it is very much circumstantial and very much you can flip it and say no. I mean, I can't say for sure who it was, um, but I firmly believe that with their fights, Tony's story where he shot her, um, I believe he drove her over the state border to confuse things as well. That's what I think. Um, and that even if he was ever ultimately caught, he would um, either be able to say it wasn't her because forensics weren't what they were back in the day, or he'd be able to kind of claim that he did the crime in one state and the body was in the other. So it would be this confusing jurisdictional issue. Um, so that's kind of what I think. I think Tony probably was guilty and I think it probably was Linda. Um, and at some point I will, you know, go out there. I've never been to Preston. And when I read that she was buried there, it's just a simple grave with like, a head like a cross in it made out of wood made me really sad um that's why I want to go out there it says it takes like 40 minutes from where I live but I've literally never been to that part of town in my whole life in Melbourne and when I read it I was like it's just strange she had no connection to Preston which is the suburb where she's buried in I don't know why she was ultimately returned to Melbourne from Sydney and buried there I don't know why they didn't return her to England I don't know if anyone ever claimed her um, her body from over there. It's just all very sad because where she lived in Melbourne, Carlton is not near Preston at all. So yeah, I might go out there and film it for you guys just kind of as a on the home front thing. I guess I can kind of do this with Australian cases or Melbourne cases, um, but I can't really do it with anything else. So I hope that you kind of enjoyed that mini episode. That is all there is on the case of Linda Agostini slash Pajama Girl. I felt funny even titling it because I was like, well, what if it's not Linda Agostini, you know, like it's not a ep half the episodes on some random girl that it's not about. So I'm interested to know kind of what you think. Um, yeah, I'll put up the pictures. They're really amazing for photos from the 20s. Um, there's certain cases I've done that happened 10 years ago and there's like one photo of the person. So it's always amazing. I love looking at historic photos and I love looking at vintage photos of women with their finger curls. It, you know, they all just looked like friggin' movie stars. Um, yeah, so I hope you enjoyed that episode and got something out of it. I like going back, you know, to retro cases. You can say whatever you want because everyone's dead who's related to it. Um, visit the website. I will put up the episode page tonight at unknownpassagepodcast.com. 
become a patron. Um, it, when you become a patron, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode. I currently have about seven coming up. Um, the next one coming up is actually, I believe, Neil. Yes. Um, I also have Lee, Amy, Molly, Angie, Sarah, Jay, and I need new patron Stephanie to provide her location request. So also, if you have a one-off donation to the podcast, because um, shit's tough at the moment, um, the PayPal is unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com if you want to contribute that way through PayPal. Um, become a patron. It links through the website, but also you can go to the Patreon app and just search for Unknown Passage Podcast. We currently have a community of like 40 people, which is awesome. And I'm thinking of introducing once in a while Patreon location requests. I have my 100th episode coming up and I feel like I'll be doing something special for that, but I will keep you posted on that. Leave a rating or review if you like the show. Um, leave a nice one. If you like hate me, just everyone needs to be like a little bit nicer. I think most people just a lot of people don't like how upfront I am and that sucks because that's who I am. Um, yeah. And email case suggestions to unknown passage, unknown passage podcast at gmail.com. And I will be back probably this weekend, um, with, I believe Neil's episode, but I'm not going really in any particular order at the moment with the Patreon location requests because I like to mix up continents and things like that. So yeah, I will talk to you then. Okay, bye.